The reading is from Ezra chapter 4, verse 24, the last verse in that chapter, through chapter 5, verse 5. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Then work on the house of the God of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. When the prophets Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of, Israel, of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At this time, Tantani, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethbar Bozani, and their colleagues came to them and spoke to them thus, Who issued you a decree to rebuild the temple and to finish this structure? Then we told them accordingly what the names of the men were who were reconstructing this building. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until a report should come to Darius, then a written re reply be returned concerning it. All you scripture readers be thankful you didn't have to read Shafbar Bosni up there. How many of you are happy to see the snow? Raise your hand. How many of you are extremely disappointed? Raise your hand. The snow people win. 77 South for the rest of you. That'll get you where you want to go. Good to see you this morning. And it's uh, been a couple of weeks since we've... Um, been exploring through our, our uh, narrative, God's narrative in the Bible. Uh, we're preaching from creation to Christ this year, and I see that there are a number of visitors today, so I want to make sure that you know that we are in, a, in the midst of a journey. Uh, it's been a, a very exciting journey for me. It's, it's been hard not to have it play um, uh, on my mind continually each day. And uh, I think that's, that's what, uh, what we want to have happen. It's, it's hard to, when it starts becoming difficult to separate God's words from your daily activities, um, that's a good thing. Obedience is another thing. But it's, it's, it's on my mind because we've been doing it this way, and I've gotten good feedback from you all that, that's been very helpful to read together, uh, to, to preach and teach on these things. And so we intend to continue to do that for some time. We've got a lot of Bible left. But we are coming close to the uh, point where uh, Christ is going to be born. Um, it will be coincidental, um, but timely, I guess, that we'll be, we'll be talking about the birth of Christ right around Christmas time here this year, a little after, actually. But I'm late for everything, anyhow. So, yeah, it'll be, it'll be perfect timing for me. Thomas time, right? So um, let's go ahead and set the uh, stage with, with where, we've, where we've been, where, where we've come through, and, and where we're at now. We're going to primarily camp out in the book of Ezra today. Uh, we've got uh, Nehemiah to talk about. We've got Esther to talk about, one of the greatest stories in the Bible, the story of Esther, the queen. And uh, we also have a couple of prophets to deal with yet before we get to John the Baptist. But right now, we're, we're rebuilding Jerusalem, and I want you to feel a part of this rebuilding, and I'll tell you why, because we're not just talking about a history lesson today. The reason that we are going through these things is because 
There's a relevance to us today as God's people, right? That's why we study the Old Testament. That's why we study the New Testament. We are to take these timeless principles laid forth in the Word of God and to apply them to our current lives, our current events, etc., etc. So, we are building. We are growing. We are God's people, and, and I want you to see that. We'll make application at the end. But right now, let's get back into the history a little bit. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. It's the last chapter in Chronicles. So after Samuel and Kings, you come to the Chronicles. You close down the history of the Kings. And close it down, we do. It's not supposed to be this way. Actually, it isn't supposed to end this way. It was supposed to be a continuation of the Kings until we came to Christ. The King of Kings. But we run into a hurdle, and that's an understatement. Zedekiah is the last king mentioned here. He's the king of Judah, and he's the one who rebels against the great king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and is taken captive by him along with the Jews for this 70-year period of captivity. Zedekiah was 21 years old. This is verse 11. 2 Chronicles 36, 11. just going to read this together through the end of the book. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. And he did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had but stiffened his, uh, excuse me, who had made him swear by an oath by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord which He had consecrated in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them. Here you're going to learn something about the nature of God again. The Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by His messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Verse 16. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, that's Nebuchadnezzar, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin. On the aged or the weak, he gave them all into his hand. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, all that which Solomon had made. All these treasures, the treasures of the king and his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious possessions. Imagine the, imagine the wealth, imagine the history and the art and the artifacts that were destroyed and or taken away here. Tremendous uh, loss of, of all these things, and that wasn't even the, the biggest loss. And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia 
to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her rests. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, of the king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea, Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. Now this 70 years that was spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah sounds something like this. In Jeremiah 29, verses 10 and 11, God said through Jeremiah, Thus says the Lord, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. Now that's kind of strange in the records of men, isn't it? To take captives and then to release them to rebuild and, and uh, to um, fund it as well. He said, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a hope and a future. Psalm 137 is a psalm written by one of the captives, describing to us a little bit about what it was like in captivity. Ezekiel does a great job of this too, but the psalmist wrote that the people of Babylon would come to them and ask them to take their harps in hand and to sing songs of Zion in a mocking way. Can you imagine us being taken captive to another nation, being exiled into some foreign country, and them saying, sing to us your national anthem, would you? We like your national anthem. Would you sing some of the songs about God and how good He is to His people? That's tough, isn't it? I mean, that's a tough pill to swallow. God told Ezekiel, he used the word shabar, which means broken in pieces. He said, my heart is Shabar. It's broken in pieces, God said. He wouldn't put him off forever though. He had promised by Isaiah some 200 years earlier. Not only the end of the captivity, but he named the man who would release his people to go home. And that is this Cyrus about whom we just read. Now, when you look at the uh, in my Bible, it's the same opening, Second Chronicles 36 and Ezra chapter 1 right next to it. You have the last verses of Second Chronicles repeated here in the first chapter of Ezra 1. So it's a continuation. And Cyrus said, I have learned that in fact, because of Jeremiah's writings and his prophecies, that God had a purpose for me before I was born... So he did with Jeremiah too, didn't he? Remember that verse, by the way? Chapter 1, verse 5. I've ordained you a prophet from the womb. I knew what I wanted you to do for me before you were born. Here's Cyrus saying, me too. Except even in a, in a, 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 over a longer period of time. And Cyrus is moved by this. He's confounded. How would you not be? that in the records of the Jews, his name was found, that he would be reigning in this empire that was not yet in existence during Jeremiah's time, and that God would then command him to release the people that were taken captive by Babylon 
and Nebuchadnezzar in the previous empire which they overthrew. So he's, he's moved by this. And Isaiah spells it out very clearly long before when he said, I say of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, remember he's not born yet by far, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings to open for him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut on him. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron, the Lord says to Cyrus. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, including my very own temple, <clears throat> that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. In verse 13 of Isaiah 45, he says, I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city. He shall let my exiles go free. Now listen to this. Not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, he's not going to take a bribe. He's not going to charge them a fee to leave. He's not going to collect from them. In fact, what we're going to learn is Cyrus will fund the rebuilding of Jerusalem. He'll command also the nations around, as does Darius the Mede when he takes over. He will command the nations around to help in the rebuilding against their will. You will send the goods and the resources to rebuild this city. When God says something, He means it, doesn't He? And He's going to do it, whether we go with Him or not sometimes. And so this is fulfilled in Ezra chapter 1. You see at, the, uh, at verse 5 there, "...the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved." So Cyrus' spirit is moved by God to do this. He's convicted. He's, he's, he's understanding what needs to be done. And so are many of the Jews, not all of them, but about 50,000 return here in this first wave, about 50,000. They return, by the way, I haven't said this yet, I don't think. The kingdom was divided under Rehoboam, remember? And then you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern became known as Israel, okay, or Ephraim, there's some other designations. The southern kingdom became known as Judah, although it incorporated Benjamin as well, became known as Judah. When they come back from the return, don't overlook the fact that there's one nation again. That's important. He's brought them together. There will also be Jews from Israel return from their captivity and all the places that they are. And Zechariah the prophet's the one who had the pleasure of saying, God will plant you like seeds among the nations and He will return some of you home to rebuild. You hold on to that when you get to the New Testament and the apostle Paul goes into all the world preaching the gospel with his companions, and the other apostles go. Where do they go? They go to those pods of Jews and their synagogues that are in place, but planted among the nations. Centuries later, those Jewish communities would be the place that those preachers would go with the gospel and begin their work there to spread the, the news into all the kingdoms of men. 
God's wisdom. That's a sidebar. I have to make up for that one now. All right. Um, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, the people rebuild the altar first. That's the first priority. We want to thank God and worship God. Now, the temple is a bigger restoration project, but what can we do first? We can rebuild the altar and begin to offer thank offerings and also sin offerings to our God. So they get to the task of rebuilding the altar. Now, picture the altar being built in the courtyard of a temple that's destroyed. That's all there is. Picture that sitting in the midst of a city that's razed to the ground and the walls are all broken down and burned. So bit by bit, the people go back in these waves and they have to muster up courage in each case to take on the next phase of the building projects until this thing is done. But I want to tell you something. Some of the most inspiring passages in the Bible are given by God during this time, and we're going to see some of them here in just a second. So in chapter 3 in verse 8, and also in verses 10 and 11, we see that the altar was completed and the foundations of the temple were laid. When you burn a wall or you burn a building that's made of rock foundation, you think, well, it doesn't burn the rocks. You can just maybe put the wood right back on top. It weakens the rocks. So you have to crack them and break them up and just get them out of there. Okay? And they have to bring all these big slabs back in. Well, they laid the foundation. So they've got the altar built. They laid the foundation. And they're so excited, they start to worship. And it says they sang responsively. And Anthony dealt with this portion a couple weeks ago in his sermon. You know what singing responsibly is? Back and forth. They were singing back and forth and echoing, singing in parts like we do today. Imagine how beautiful that sounded in the open air of the city. And the people who knew these songs and didn't have the joy in their hearts to sing them for over 70 years but did evidently pass them along to their children. Though discouraged and no feeling hopeless, they taught them to their children, they taught them about their God, and now they have the opportunity to worship together. They couldn't even wait till the temple got built. They began to worship. It's exciting, but we run into our first opposition. Of course, right? It doesn't take long. They face their first real test, listen to this, when the Samaritans the people that were around them were known as Samaritans. They were from Sumer and Akkad and a few places of the north who, when the Assyrians took the northern kingdom captive, displaced them into the north, and they took people from the northlands and displaced them into the south. And so you have people from other lands, distant places, moving into what was Israel's inheritance, they're the neighbors. They despise Israel. They don't want Israel coming back to rebuild. They know about their God and they know about their history. And we don't want anything to do with these people. So naturally, as soon as they begin to celebrate and worship, opposition. Doesn't that just sound like your life? You know, things don't go good sometimes for very long. When things are rolling along really good, Satan says, ah, that's enough of that. I need to throw in something. And God allows these things to take us to new levels and new heights. And so, they gather together some of the chief people of the land. It's called the land beyond the river because Babylon's north of the Euphrates. So they called everyone south of the Euphrates the people beyond the river. And so all these heads of these peoples wrote a letter. And they made accusations. And they said things like, 
they're rebuilding this rebellious and evil city. Check your records and see if this thing was allowed anywhere. They'll not pay tax, nor tribute, nor customs to the king. They're going to be harmful to the kings and their provinces. We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its temple is completed, the result will be that you'll have no dominion beyond the river. Well, that's a pretty harsh accusation, isn't it? But you know what the king does? He goes and he starts digging up records, but he goes too far back. He goes back, back across uh, Cyrus's records. He goes back deeper and he goes and starts finding records from the king of Babylon of how these people were when they were taken captive. And they were rebellious and they were stiff-necked and they stopped paying their tribute money. And he said, man, yeah. Well, I don't know how these people got back here and what they're doing, but tell them to stop. And so they got this letter from the king and they marched right up. Can you imagine marching right up to Jerusalem? <laughs> letter from the king, Artaxerxes. You have to stop. And by force of arms, they made them stop. A show of force. And they stopped. For over a decade, they stopped. God didn't tell them to stop. Can't find that anywhere. He didn't tell them to stop. The king told them to stop. But you know what they did? They obeyed man rather than God. Now, it took me a little bit to let that sink in. What all was happening. That's a little hiccup. They weren't supposed to stop. Can't God handle this stuff? Didn't He bring His people out of Egypt and say to Pharaoh, let my people go now or else? Keep it going. So there was something missing here. They were succeeding. Here's a lesson for us today. They were succeeding as long as everything was going okay. And no one said anything about it. But the first time some fire came, they backed down. They had to learn how to deal with this. And so it says at the end of Ezra 4 that the work of the house of God which is at Jerusalem ceased and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. But then, God acted. Now, He gave them some time. This is interesting. What was God doing during this time? Maybe 12 years. What was God doing? He was giving them time to think this through, to realize that He hadn't spoken any differently. The command was still a green light. And He let them think about it for a while. And then He said, okay, Haggai, Zechariah, I got some things I need you to tell my people. I want you to go straight to the governor. I want you to go straight to the priest, Joshua. To Zerubbabel and, jo and Joshua. Well, what kinds of things were they saying then that brought on chapter 5, verses 1 and 2? Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, or Joshua, the son of Josadak, rose up and began to build the house of God which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. Now this is against the will of the king. This is against the will of the most recent edict, but it is in harmony with the will of God. What did they do for 12 years? 
Haggai is the one that reveals to us what they did. They got really comfortable. In fact, there's evidence to suggest that with all this good cedar laying around, imagine this, you uh, home remodelers. All this cedar was being brought in from Lebanon, shipped from Tyre down to Joppa and, and worked inland up to the temple, just like the first temple. It was commanded that they bring the cedars of Lebanon to rebuild the framing of the temple. And it's all coming in. And they're told to stop and go home. Temptation. A bunch of good cedar boards laying around. What are you going to do with it? Not allowed to build the temple. But I got a house that got burned to the ground a few years back, and um, it needs some restoration done. You know what they do? Haggai says, turn with me to Haggai chapter 1. Unless you want your toes, or don't want your toes stepped on, turn to Haggai chapter 1. I hear very few pages turning. Maybe you don't want your toes stepped on. It stepped on my toes because we live very, very comfortably here in America. And we have to ask ourselves some, some tough questions about priorities here. Verse 2 of the book of Haggai. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Well, it just must not be God's will because King Artaxerxes sent us a letter and told us to stop. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet again saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? There's one hint. Other places say that God had to command that they go get wood from the forest of Ephraim to, to rebuild the temple. Another place says that they uh, built their homes and it was cedar. We have evidence that they actually took the building materials, took it home and built their houses with the materials supposed to build the temple out of. I would not want to be found guilty of that, would you? Seriously, that's rough. But, you know, God doesn't really pick on that as much as He does the fact that they're sitting comfortably in the homes when the work of God needs to take place. And He says, you're running to your houses. Can't wait to go work on the next project. Man, ouch! Ugh, that's me! Is that you? I love to do projects around the house. I got a little tired of it, I guess, after a long enough time, but I still enjoy it when I have to. I still enjoy doing it. And I like taking things like cedar and making stuff. I like working with the wood. I enjoy that. Sometimes I'm really comfortable there. And I'm, less, I'm a lot more comfortable getting out a Lowe's card or running up a few hundred bucks at Home Depot than I am putting in a collection plate or giving it to somebody in need. Now that's a confession, but I wonder if I'm the only one in the room. Sometimes it's easier to dwell in your paneled houses, to justify the works that you have to do because it's your home and it's real estate and it's an asset. It's part of my financial gain. It's part of my retirement plan. While the house of the Lord remains in, in need of of building, whether you're talking about the brick and mortar of this home, or of this uh, house of God, if you will, that has much debt to repay, or you're talking about the house of the Lord, the people, and the work that needs done in people's lives, when they should see you prioritizing that house over your own. I know, I know. 
God gave them 12 years to consider their ways. Consider your ways, verse 5, Haggai chapter 1. You've sown much, now listen to this, you've sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You're clothed, but no one's warm. He who earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. That sounds like a high tax rate or something, doesn't it? That's not what it is. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple. The wood was already there once. Bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. I'm not going to let you prosper until you finish building my temple, is what he's saying. I blew it away. I was the one who took your little purse and snipped holes in the bottom to where you were bringing home income, but you could never seem to get ahead. That was me. I put holes in your pocket. God can do that. Do you ever wonder sometimes where'd our money go? You ever wonder that? Well, it may not be because you're being sinful, but I think we've all had that experience. Have you ever prospered when you knew at times in your life you were right with God? God can step in and have something to do with that. Here He's saying, I was doing that. I called for a drought on the land and the mountains and the grain. And this is after they had that worship session over the foundation of the temple. This is after that. They're all fired up. They were told to stop and they capitulated. Oh, well, well, I'm going to take his stuff and go build my house with it. God said, you are not going to prosper as long as you sit on your camp. You're not. But listen to what he says, what happens in chapter 1, verse 12. Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, and the Lord their God, as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. That is to say... Instead of fearing man, King Artaxerxes, and the people of the land more than God, they heard these words of God and said, we ought to fear God more than man. Amen? And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, and on the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second, day, uh, second year of King Darius, they began that work on it. It took them 24 days to congregate and begin building. Get this, 12 years of sitting around doing house projects with the material from the temple, 24 days once Haggai and Zechariah began working on their hearts. It worked. God's powerful word reached their hearts. You come back to Ezra chapter 6, and you see in verse 13 and 14 something beautiful. Tatnai, the governor who sent that letter, making all these accusations, receives a letter back from Darius. This is another, by the way, this is another letter. Darius sends this letter back when Tatnai opposes them and says, you know, second of opposition, by the way. They started building again. There was opposition. I forgot to tell you that. Tatnai sends a letter. Darius is the king now. Darius sends a letter back. Some scholars believe that this Darius is Esther's son. 
and it may well be. Did that open your eyes? Esther's son, perhaps it is, because he was very favorable. And he went to the records and he said, no, the previous king overlooked this decree by Cyrus. This is the one, the law of the Medes and Persians, that is most recently in effect. You go and build it. In fact, Tataniah, you're going to help pay for it. And I'm going to impose a tax on all the peoples of the land until it gets paid for and completed. So here's what happens. Ezra 6.14, The elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Well, elders were working together. Priests were working together. Preachers were working together. The people were working together. The whole congregation was working together. And when they decided to do that, they were unstoppable. When they identified the will of God and they were reassured of it, and everyone put their hands to the work, and the Word of God was preached among them, they were inspired to get this thing done. And so they completed the temple. Now you have the altar and you have the temple built. What about the walls? Enter in Nehemiah here later on. And he'll take care of the rest and get things ready for the Messiah. The prince is coming to Jerusalem. What kinds of things does Zechariah have to say to them? God said, I'm a wall of fire about you, and my glory is in your midst. That's where that song comes from. A wall of fire about me, I have nothing now to fear. With his manna he my hungry soul shall fill. Zechariah said, and I'm a wall of fire around you. He who touches you touches the apple of my eye, people. I'm coming and I'll dwell in your midst. By my Spirit, I will make Zerubbabel, who started the foundation, finish the temple. The man whose name is the branch shall build the temple. Bear the glory and sit and rule on his throne, a priestly king. There's a dual prophecy starting to touch on the Messiah who comes as a priestly king. Let your hands be strong, you who have been hearing these words of the prophets. Listen to this. So I will save you, and you will be a blessing. Whoa, have you heard that phrase before? You shall be a blessing. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Abraham, I'll bless all those who bless you, and I'll curse all those who curse you, and you will be blessed, and you shall be a blessing. And through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God says, through Zechariah, you shall be a blessing. And many other things He said. But how about that great prophecy of the coming Christ? When He said, your King is coming to you. Shout, rejoice, your King is coming to you. What's He going to look like? What's He going to be? Is He going to be carried in on one of those, uh, I don't even know what you call those things. Big things on poles with the big, you know. What do you call those? I don't know. Big fancy things, what I call it. Is he going to be carried in like that? No, he's going to come riding on a donkey. In fact, a colt. The foal of a donkey. Humbly. That's how you identify. He's going to come into your... And who did that? Eight days before his sacrifice. That's right. Christ Jesus. Well, let me skip to the end in the application here. 
You might be thinking, <clears throat> for some of you, this historical stuff's a little boring. I hope by the fact that this is the Word of God and prophecy of God, it's not boring to you, but let's make application. Someone says, is that relevant to us? Well, it's not relevant unless you consider these things, that these are the children of God we're reading about, and we're the children of God, that their history is our history now, and that their narrative is just an earlier stage in the overall narrative of the salvation of God, and we're in a later part of it. Their narrative is our narrative. We're all in this thing together. Oh, they're not very related until today, you might say, until you see that because of sin, they were led away captive. And because of sin, we also are led away captive by Satan to do his will. The only hope that they had of freedom from captivity was in God's power and by His Spirit and His might in the inner man. And the only way we have hope today is in God's mighty work in the cross of Christ and by His Spirit who sanctifies us and justifies us and cleanses us from all sin and empowers us to do God's will. Well, it's not very relevant, someone might say, unless you consider the fact that they were engaged in a, rest, a restorative movement and we're engaged in a restorative movement. Have you noticed that complete and perfect restoration is never achieved, but something to be ever striven for here with the Jews? They're always working to restore, to restore, to keep, to hold on, to, to get things right. Well, so are we. It's only complete. Restoration in a church is only complete, especially for us in the churches of Christ who claim the restoration movement, and sometimes have the audacity to think we've come to completion of it. We have it all. We've done it. Restoration is only complete if every individual and the body of individuals as a whole collectively are perfect. Are you there yet? Is this body perfect in light of the New Testament, what we're doing and who we are? We have work to do. It's only complete that is, in the end, in the final consummation of all things. That's when we can stop restoring, when God restores to us heavens and earth. They don't relate unless you realize that they were building the temple of God and we're building the temple of God. The temple building of, of the kingdom of Jesus Christ continues until He returns. For by the gospel, everyone who hears it and obeys it is added as a living stone into this building, being built up one stone at a time, into a holy habitation, as Zechariah put it. It's not very similar, someone might say, unless you realize that they were facing opposition in their efforts both to thrive uh, from without and within. And we are facing opposition from without, are we not? And we face opposition, unfortunately, from within. From within the church, we face opposition sometimes to God's great plan. Questioning, even challenging, with all good conscience, is great. But when we're undermining God's will and we are dividing God's people, we are troubling and opposing God's will. If you consider the fact that they are anticipating the coming of Christ through prophetic promise, and we also are anticipating the coming of Christ through prophetic promise with His second coming, oh, there's a lot in common. They were supposed to make their paths straight. So were we. 
They were supposed to replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, so were we. They were supposed to live by faith until He comes, keeping their lamps trimmed and full of oil, so are we, to be ready always for His coming. I guess the whole process seems like a model for the church today, doesn't it? Don't you think? Oh, there's a lot in common. When you read this, let it come alive to you. And you, instead of being a naysayer like the Samaritans and a tattletale like Tataniah, what an appropriate name, and or a paneled house dweller sitting back and letting the work of the Lord go to someone else, we should be courageously building by the Word of God preached, by the promises of God which He will keep with or without my participation. May we obey the Lord. May we obey the Gospel so that instead of evil befalling us, God's thoughts of peace and good toward us will be fulfilled with a future and a hope. That's my word to you today from the Scriptures. I want to ask our song leader to come up, and if you want to obey the Gospel today, please take the time to do that. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thy